Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. And as we often do, Thanksgiving weekend morphs into the beginning of Advent, this season of anticipation that uh, Megan uh, did a great job explaining and walking us through, this, this waiting for an arrival, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, and awaiting the arrival of King Jesus. And what's interesting about Advent is where we stand as a church today, we're not just reenacting, you know, where Israel was as they awaited the arrival of the birth of Jesus, but that we as a church are still very much in a season of waiting. We're still very much in a time of Advent. But this time, we're not waiting for Jesus to come as a baby. We're waiting for Jesus to return as the King of the new heavens and the new earth. And John talked about earlier in his letter that, church, we're in the last hour right now. This is the last hour. Nothing is left to happen until Jesus returns. And so we work up until that point. And, and so rightly understood, Advent it doesn't just shape what we believe, but also how we behave. Our waiting is not passive. We're not just sitting back waiting, but it's active. We got work to do that God has called us to do in our waiting to make disciples who know Jesus and make him known. And we do that through the words we say, um, right, the proclamation of the gospel, but then we also do that in the lives we lead, the implications of the gospel in our lives, actively serving, loving, pouring ourselves out for others. And so with that said, we as a church have a new opportunity to serve this Advent season. Um, One of our mission's partners is Mendenhall Ministries. Now, if you've been part of Grace Church, you're very familiar, I'd hope, with Mendenhall. Uh, it's a ministry that was started by civil rights titan John Perkins back in the 1960s uh, to serve the people of Mendenhall, Mississippi. And we at Grace have had a long-standing partnership with them, uh, and that has been strengthened even more so in recent years with Scotty Holloway becoming the president of the ministry down there. So over the last several years, we have sent teams down there. Um, obviously, we couldn't do it in 2020, but we will be doing it again, Lord willing, next year. Uh, Scotty has come up and met with me personally, has met with some of our leaders. Uh, he, being in pastoral ministry for about 25 to 30 years before Mendenhall, has served as a personal mentor to me and a friend. And one of the aspects of their ministry is a Christian elementary school called the Genesis One School. And there are 30 students currently enrolled at that school. And the missions committee here at Grace would like to provide each student at Genesis 1 School with a Christmas gift this season um, from a person or family at Grace Church. So this afternoon, an email will be going out with an opportunity to sign up to be one of the 30 uh, people and or families from Grace Church to provide a gift. And so upon registering, you will... um, be given an email where you'll get an age and name of a student um, and uh, some details and instructions on how we're handling the gifts. Uh, kind of going into it, you can know that the general um, guidelines can be about $40 to $50 gift, and we'll provide instructions as to what that should and could be. Um, but overall, this is just an opportunity for us to encourage the families down in Mendenhall to strengthen our relationship with them and, again, to find a new way in a difficult year to not just get things as a church, but to pour ourselves out in this Advent season. Um, And so it's going to be first come, first serve, right? There's 30 slots. Uh, So be on the lookout this afternoon. My hope is that they go quickly, uh, but that we will be able to match up with each student and family down there and provide a gift. 
Well, we are down to just two sermons left in 1 John. And you might be wondering, if you've been at Grace for a while, wait, where's my Advent sermon series? I'm getting ripped off here. And you, you kind of are for a couple of weeks, all right? We need to finish 1 John. And then we will segue into an Advent series in December. But we got, we got to finish this. And we are at the fifth and final chapter of this letter. And in this final chapter, we're going to see John try to land the plane, so to speak, and kind of tying together all these themes we've seen over the last now two and a half months in this letter. Um, and primarily, what John has been after is assurance. He wants to give assurance to the church. And this final chapter is going to be a very strong, final, edifying word to that end. And not only assurance, but encouragement. Encouragement, it's not a weak word like we often make it. It's not, you know, I just want to encourage you. No, no, that means to literally give courage to somebody. That's a strong word. John wants to give courage to the church. Because the church then, and the church now, we need to be assured of who God says we are. And we need the courage to do what God has called us to do. Assurance and encouragement. So our passage is going to be 1 John 5, 1 through 12. And I want to make a primary contention up front that I hope to unpack. Here's what I want us to see in this passage. That it takes understanding faith to be a Christian. But it takes understanding faith alone to live as a victorious Christian. That's what I'm going to unpack this morning. So let's go into the text. First John chapter 5. We'll start with the first five verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So it's interesting how John introduces kind of this final chapter in that um, every time a baby is born you immediately see the physical traits of his or her birth parents. So in the last couple of weeks in our Grace Church family, I, think we, we, I know we've had two baby girls born uh, here within our church family. Um, there's another one due in a few weeks, Lord willing. Um, and then Rochelle and I, in our per- immediate families, um, my brother and her sister both welcomed in new babies into their family. So all I have to say, we've gotten a flurry of baby pictures over the last couple weeks. And what do you do when you first see a picture of a newborn baby? You look at it and you go, do you look more like mom or dad? Which traits did you get of each or both? Right? So then our four kids, like he- here was the question for Rochelle and I, are they going to have the big Scandinavian heads that are a little disproportionate? Are they going to have my floppy earlobes? Or uh, will the Lord be merciful to them and give them Rochelle's side of the family, which is a little more symmetrical? Uh, like, this is the question we are asking when babies are born within Syverton families. And John takes that language and he borrows it to, to explain how Christians who have been spiritually born of God resemble their Father in heaven whom they've been born of. 
And John, I think, gets this language from Jesus himself from the story rooted, uh, from the story recorded in John's gospel. When a Pharisee named Nicodemus came to him in the middle of the night to ask him a question, and Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Which led to the natural question then, and a question that still persists amongst many now, how in the world can you be born again? And the answer, all throughout the New Testament, is by faith. John says in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And this will launch John into his impassioned final chapter, which we're going to see three um, aspects of faith, starting with, number one, victorious faith. And this first point is going to be our most central point, our longest point. And so if you want to tune out of the sermon, tune out later, but give me your focus now. All right? Number one, victorious faith. Throughout this letter, we've seen again and again, John is giving these three broad categories of evidence of a professing believer that make them to be a true believer. Say, oh, you say you're a Christian? Do you say you're a Christian? Here's three things that will be true of you. You'll have right belief. There'll be the sign and evidence of love and the sign of obedience. We've talked about all three of those really extensively over the past two and a half months, and he puts it all together in verses one through three. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, everyone who loves God, loves the children of God, and those who obey his commandments. But then look how he sums it up in verse four. I want to dig into this verse. I think this is the most important verse of this passage. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If you are someone who allows yourself to write in your Bible, circle that phrase, highlight it in your Bible app, our faith. John spotlights it here. It's this dramatic buildup to the climax of victory. This is the thing that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith. Let me take a page from John's style to emphasize first by observing what he does not say. It does not say this is the victory that has overcome the world, our love. It does not say this is the victory that has overcome the world, our obedience. No, it's our faith. And yes, our love and obedience is the result of victory. It's the evidence for it. We've talked about that extensively. But the reason is faith. Results are love and obedience, but the reason is faith. Faith in who? Which leads to verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Here's John's contention. Again, final uh, words of his letter, final chapter. He says, Jesus is the hero of the story of salvation. Church, I need you to understand that. It's not us. It's not our love. It's not our obedience. It's him. It's his work. And a victorious life is built on faith. It's not that it just includes faith. It's built on it. That faith in Christ is not the front door to your Christian life. It's the very foundation that the whole Christian life rests upon. And here's where I want to dig in here. And I'm, 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 you know, again, we've talked a lot about love and obedience, but I want to just singularly focus on this verse because I think this one pops off the page for me. And I think it proves to be so important the role of faith. Not just understanding it, 
but understanding in the reality of faith alone. Um, so Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. I think I referenced it earlier in the series. He has a chapter in the book called The True Foundation. This, that one chapter is worth the cost of the book in and of itself. It's like 10 bucks on Amazon, right? You can go get it as a Christmas gift for yourself um, and maybe others. But his contention in this chapter is that while salvation by faith is a very familiar doctrine in the church, many Christians expose the fact by the way they live their lives that they don't truly understand salvation by faith alone. And you might hear that, and you might think that's a theological nuance, doesn't do much for me. But the difference between faith and faith alone indeed makes all the difference. And that nearly all professing believers, again, would affirm that it takes faith to be a Christian. But for the professing believer who is assured of their salvation and is experientially experiencing victory are those who affirm that it is by faith alone that we are saved. Faith alone is the answer to the question, how does one enter the courtroom of heaven as a sinner and leave that courtroom justified and saved? Salvation is entirely apart from works and completely rests upon the works of Jesus Christ alone, which we receive by faith alone. And the difference between understanding those two things is what unlocks a victorious Christian life. Not just a Christian life that's constantly up and down, feeling like defeat and victorious, but a victorious Christian life, a joy that hinges on this truth. And so Lloyd-Jones makes the distinction that this isn't necessarily uh, a difference between Christians and non-Christians, but immature Christians and mature Christians. Again, that's possible to be a Christian but not ever experience the kind of victory that has overcome the world. A victory that has overcome the world. And what was interesting to me about his observation as a pastor, again, in England in the middle of the 20th century, is that his observation was that Christians who don't experience victory are most commonly those who grew up in the church and grew up in Christian homes. And he contends that you can become a true Christian in affirming and subscribing to right belief in Jesus, just as a child can, as a young child who can confess Jesus Christ from a young age. But then, oftentimes, they will go on to live a life that primarily focuses on what they should do as Christians, as opposed to focusing on what Christ has done. And so they realize that faith is a part of their life, but they, they grow up by God's grace in a Christian home that is, is a strong, moral home, and then they never see themselves as, quote, that bad as the world around them. And it's... All too often, they can become blinded to the fact that they grew reliant upon their own Christian performance as the base of their assurance and not the work of Christ. And that their lived experience is not reliant on faith alone. And the reason why this is such a dangerous trap to avoid is that when someone is not reliant on the work of Christ, they don't experience true victory in this life because they're reliant on their own works for assurance which they can never obtain because we're not perfect. 
And so it's a feeling of constantly feeling defeated and a constant up and down. But John says this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith, not our actions. So let me personalize this. I think my story is very much reflected in this, which is why this verse, I think, popped off the page to me, and that phrase, our faith, and why that chapter in Lloyd-Jones' book resonated so much. Um, As many of you know, I grew up in a Christian home, a faithful, gospel-rooted Christian home. My dad was the pastor of Grace Church. I moved here when I was in first grade. I literally grew up here. Strong Christian family, strong Christian home, strong Christian church. I confessed faith in Jesus at a young age. And I knew the answers. And I grew up generally wanting to be a good kid. Not just to impress my parents. Not just because I feel like I should as the pressure, as the pastor's kid. But I wanted to be a good Christian. I think I genuinely wanted that. I think that was a good desire. But in hindsight, I so often looked for my assurance in my own personal performance as a Christian. And what that meant was I would be puffed up with pride when I feel like I performed well or downcast with discouragement when I feel like I was not performing well. But either way, I was focused on my works as a Christian and not on Christ. So forget taking the Christ out of Christmas. I took the Christ out of Christian. And I never would have said that. But that was my day-to-day lived experience as a Christian to focus on me and how was I performing. And that eventually, I think by God's grace, blew up in my face when my own performance blew up in college. And I was awakened to the reality that I was not just someone who sinned occasionally, but it was not as bad as all those people in the world, but that I was a sinner and when it was lovingly pointed out to me that I was, I was living in a house with six guys and that somebody told me that you could tell no difference in the way I was living as a Christian and professing believer and as a housemate of mine who had never been to church a day in his life. And when I stopped comparing myself to just the world and again, those who were quote-unquote worse than me and I instead just focused on Christ that is when I realized how much I fell short and how desperate I was for a Savior. That I had faith in Jesus, but I was not relying on faith alone because I never came to the point where I realized just how much of a sinner I was. And so we could go down the rabbit hole of, was I a Christian before then or not? And and honestly, my belief is that I was a Christian. I believe I believed in Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior, but I had an immature, childlike faith that did not grow up, that was not fully awakened to grace. And it was not until then that I surrendered fully to him, where I simultaneously saw my sin for what it was and saw the experiencing power of God's grace by faith alone, and that it was his work not mine. And why I'm sharing that is because I, as now serving as a pastor, see it and hear trajectories of that path all the time. Of people who grew up in a Christian home or a um, Catholic home that emphasized religion and CCD and, and, and confirmation and, and had, you know, a, again, a moral upbringing and, and never understood life as a non-Christian that never fully relied upon Jesus Christ 
alone. And then high school comes, or they grow into adulthood, and there starts to be some struggle, starts to be some doubt. Not all for the same reasons, but that the common denominator is that there's an overemphasis on what we do as Christians and get our eyes off faith in what Christ has done. And when faith is not the foundation, the house starts to shake. And often, many will go build the new house, and they'll walk away from Christ altogether. But I'd say even more often, many will just proceed in life as Christians, but they're not marked by a victorious joy. It's a kind of ho-hum kind of faith. Yeah, I've always kind of known this. I'm kind of bored by it. And professing Christians who exhibit no joy, who don't see themselves as overcomers. And I'm not talking like we should be seeing fake happiness in people and just act like everything's fine. I'm talking about that rugged joy that exists even when there's tears running down your face. Where Christ is not just part of our lives because, yeah, he always has been, but he's the beating heart center of our life. And Lloyd-Jones helps with some exploratory questions, and so let me read directly from that passage in Spiritual Depression. He says, My test is a positive one. Do I know God? I'm not asking whether you know things about him, but do you know God? Are you enjoying God? Is God the center of your life, the soul of your being, the source of your greatest joy? He is meant to be. So if I can speak to even those who maybe are currently being raised in a Christian home, man, it is God's grace on your life that you're being raised in a Christian home. Absolutely. But do not fall into the trap of looking more to your performance as a Christian for your assurance than you do to Christ's work in your life. That is where the victorious life happens. The essence of the victorious life is faith alone. And then the evidence of the Christian life is love for one another and obedience to the commandments. So again, we don't need to dig into that because I think we've done it pretty well for two and a half months. But the essence of your Christian life is faith. And then the evidence of your Christian life is love and obedience. Martin Luther famously said, We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. All right, we're going to go real quickly here uh, on the final two points. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. Number two, a reasonable faith. So, so John is building off here that the, everything's spotlighted on the work of the Son of God, but our faith in him is not blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. We saw earlier when John said and exhorted the church, test the spirits, test the teachers, test all teaching that you hear. All right, because we have an enemy, and that enemy just constantly wants to distort truth in your life. He wants for chaos to overcome order. So don't just entrust your faith to anything. Don't just believe it because you heard it or your friend said it or you saw it on the news or social media or YouTube. He said, just test it. Test everything you hear. 
And we should not be threatened when people question Christianity. Even within the church, we shouldn't feel threatened when people start asking questions. Parents, you shouldn't feel threatened when your kids start to ask questions. As they're just struggling with some things that you've always taught them. And in some ways, we should even encourage it. Because we are confident that all truth is God's truth. The evidence points to him. The witness of all creation bends towards the sovereign creator. And so by all means, let's bring all the evidence out. Let's go. Let's bring it all out. Put it all out on the table. And let's see where it leads. You know, Bertrand Russell, some of you might recognize that name. He's one of um, kind of recent history's most well-known atheists. And uh, Russell wrote an essay based on a lecture he gave in 1927 entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And you can Google it and read it online. But Russell was asked one time, what will he do if he dies? And he finds out that Christianity was real. What would he say to God? And Russell simply said, I would probably ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? Well, John, as he nears the end of his letter, is here to provide some evidence. This little section, I think, is his most creative writing aspect of the letter. He paints a a courtroom scene where he calls various witnesses to the stand. And he gives not one, not two, like the law of Moses requires, not even three, but five witnesses. Number one, water. John here is referring to Jesus' baptism A story recounted in all four Gospels showing its importance. Where the triune God was revealed in the Bible for the first time. And Jesus was anointed for his public ministry by the Father who sent the Spirit upon him and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The water testifies to Jesus Christ. Number Number two, the blood. The work of Jesus was initiated at his baptism and completed by his bloody death on the cross where he said the words, it is finished. When Jesus died, the earth shook, the temple curtain tore in two, and a Roman centurion looking upon the scene said, surely this man was the son of God. The blood testifies to Jesus Christ. Number three, third witness, the spirit meaning the Holy Spirit, whom proceeded from the Father and the Son, and whom Jesus declared the Spirit of truth. The Spirit who was there with Jesus at the creation of the world in Genesis 1. The Spirit who was there at Jesus' human conception in Luke chapter 1. He was there at his baptism. He was there at his temptation in the desert. The Spirit was there throughout his ministry up to his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. The Spirit who was sent by Jesus upon those who would put their faith in Him. The Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus. Number four, the Father. The Father Himself. As the one who sent His one and only Son into the world. And we'll hear His testimony from Jesus Himself in John 5, 37, when He says, The Father who sent me has Himself testified about me. I don't know about you, but I believe the words of Jesus and the testimony of the Father. And then number five, the convert. You, me. Verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. 
This testimony is not just externally known amongst the people of God, but is internally confirmed. That yes, we want evidence and we like to look into the evidence, but the number one reason why we believe is not because of external evidence, it's internal spiritual affirmation. And that might not be convincing to unbelievers, but that's very much convincing to us. In Romans 8, Apostle Paul puts it this way, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And this evidence is most assuring. John wants to give you assurance. Because while the other witnesses were of a time past, our testimony is current. It's affirmed by our confession that Jesus is Lord today. And we don't just know it, we feel it. We experientially live it by faith alone. It's a reasonable faith that was true yesterday, today, and the future, which leads now to our final point. Let's read verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. We've seen victorious faith, a reasonable faith, and now last, eternal faith. At this point, we would do well to ask, how strong is faith in Jesus Christ? Have you had people in your life who just maybe heard the gospel and just said, it just feels too easy? All of history, all the cosmos, all of eternity is just bound in faith? Just believe? That's it? And we say, yes, faith. It's not just strong enough to heal the old wounds and cover old sins. It's not merely strong enough to give present-day confidence in the midst of highs and lows of our present age, but it is also powerful enough to provide assurance of future grace that will last into all of eternity. Church, as we close, God did not merely give you life in Christ. He gave you eternal life. And the gift of faith provided by grace through Christ to you is freely offered, not by your works, not by your might, but it's the gift of Jesus Christ. As we stand here at the starting line of the 2020 Advent season, this gift affirms that you'll never be good enough as to earn eternal life on your own. And you'll never be bad enough to be too far removed from eternal life being freely offered to you in Christ. And the phrase that defines our lives now is not that we are good enough, but that he is good enough and we are secure in him. So take courage with you on the road to eternity. Take heart, not primarily in your performance, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the highway to glory. And I close with a Spurgeon quote because he says it better than me. Many go to heaven with very little comfort on the road. I do not commend them for their lack of comfort, but I do advise you, instead of looking to singular experiences as a ground of confidence, look to the bleeding Savior. Rest alone in him, for if you have him, you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it has been so instructive to us in this 
series in 1 John, how you have showed us the evidence and the signs of conversion. But I thank you now for a moment of clarity for us to plainly declare that the victory that has overcome the world is not our actions, but it is our faith. Our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that that faith would unlock and free us to live the lives you have called us to live without staring at ourselves and relying on ourselves. But Lord, eyes fixed on you. And as we now prepare to close with singing and communion, I pray that that would be our singular focus. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.